breakthrough in the transit dispute. How rock star mediator Vince Reddy helped reach a tentative deal to keep buses and Skytrains moving. A full review of BC's safer drug supply. I would summarize the reach of this policy by saying that it's limited. The evidence about its impact and recommendations to save more lives. And rolling hazards on our highways. The shocking number of transport trucks pulled off the road after basic inspections showed hidden dangers. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. We start with a breakthrough in transit talks. Mediator Vince Reddy helped broker a deal that promises to bring labor peace and keep the bus and SkyTrain system running. Travis Prasad is here with the breaking details. And Travis, it looks like mediation worked. Yeah, no kidding. Bus, sea bus, and SkyTrain possibly were set to go shut down for 72 hours starting this Saturday. We were talking to transit users here in Surrey who were stressed out, looking for alternate means of getting around, stressed that they'd be losing their main way of getting around for three days. But that's not going to happen. Um, the good news here is that both sides, as you mentioned, Chris, have accepted special mediator Vince Reddy's recommendations at the table, and they've averted any future picket lines. So let's take a look at what the union had to say about accepting those recommendations. QP 4500 thanks Mr. Reddy for his thorough and comprehensive review of the issues at the heart of this dispute. His recommendations show there are compromises that can be made on both sides of the bargaining table. While they don't completely address our issues, these recommendations are clearly our best path towards a mutually acceptable set settlement. So that statement was made this afternoon around 1.30, essentially putting the ball in Coast Mountain Bus Company's court. And about an hour later, the employer also announced it accepts the terms. Coast Mountain's president and general manager, Michael McDaniel, saying, as the special mediator noted, labor disruptions in the Lower Mainland's public transportation system lead to significant public hardship and negative economic impacts for many. Paying significant costs for alternative forms of transportation isn't an option. And without public transit, there is increased traffic and congestion for many. Yeah, so Travis, obviously the deal needs to be ratified. What happens next for both sides here? Yeah, so first, both sides need to sign what's called a memorandum of agreement. After that, the new contract will be ratified. Now, as for the details of the new contract, we don't have that yet. We also don't know what special mediator Vince Reddy's recommendations were that got the job done. But the big story here for some 300,000 commuters in the region, Chris, no transit strike. Well, a lot of people will be curious to hear what sealed the deal. Travis, thanks very much. That's Travis Prasad reporting for us. So commercial vehicle overpass strikes might make headlines, but some grim new numbers show it is far from the only danger in heavy transport. Ramina Dea has the latest results from last year's police checks, which found many big rigs that shouldn't even be on the road. A 30-pound brake pad just holding on by one loose bolt. A potentially catastrophic outcome averted. The trucker caught by the VPD's commercial vehicle unit. 
Burnaby RCMP partnered with 10 agencies to conduct 50 commercial vehicle stops across the Lower Mainland last year. Our top year-over-year year is always lamps. That can re re um, be anything from a headlight to rear turn signals, brake lights not working. The second most concerning defect, brakes and steering. An alarming number of unsafe vehicles detected. Mounties say more than 1,700 trucks were inspected, resulting in almost 4,000 violations. More than half yanked off the road. These vehicles can't be on the road if they're not safe to be on the road. The BC Trucking Association welcoming enforcement, but suggesting it's only a small portion of the fleet which failed. When we look at the number of them and the focused enforcement, that's something that we welcome is to say, let's make sure we get the stuff that's off the road. But it's not half of all trucks. It's half of those trucks that are selected for that follow-up, that there's something that doesn't appear quite right. Police say it's a safety issue which affects everyone. Commercial vehicles, the largest on the road, hauling over 100,000 pounds of weight. These trucks have the ability to uh, vaporize cement uh, medians on Highway 1 just due to the nature of their size. They are proverbial tanks on our road. While the percentage of unsafe trucks pulled off the road has come down slightly, police are urging drivers to be vigilant with their own inspections because a simple defect or insecure load could be deadly. Romina Dea, Global News. Unions and educators from across Vancouver are deeply concerned about a teacher shortage and its impact on students pending an open letter to the Vancouver School Board. Aaron MacArthur joins us live from Vancouver. Aaron, the letter reveals some pretty dire statistics. It does. Chris, it's wintertime and teachers probably more so than the rest of us get sick and can't make it into work. When that happens, there's supposed to be a TOC, a sub. The union says too often that's not happening. Listen carefully and then we'll ask you some questions. At schools across Vancouver, some students not receiving the instruction they need. Single choice, okay. The union representing Vancouver Elementary school teachers compiled data that shows an ever-increasing workload for teachers caused by a chronic staff shortage. And the impact is significant, not just on students, but also on our colleagues who are finding that their programs are suffering, that the curriculum um, uh, implementation is suffering, but also that they aren't able to provide the kinds of supports that they really want to do. Vancouver teachers, along with unions representing support workers, signed an open letter addressed to the Vancouver School Board highlighting this issue. According to the letter, since the beginning of the school year, Secondary teachers have reported 400 blocks of instructional time that were not filled. In elementary schools, there were 1,300 absences that were not filled, including 972 where resource teachers were pulled from their usual assignments to cover the general classroom work. The results are self-reported. The union believes the problem is actually much worse. The decisions about how staffing is rolled out happens in April. Uh, we need the board to be really paying attention to this issue and putting their money where their mouth is. According to the VSB, more than 500 staff have been hired since March of 2023, including 329 teachers and 114 support staff. The BC Teachers Federation says this is an issue that stretches well beyond the borders of Vancouver. This is an issue that has been existing for a long time across the province. 
it was pretty severe out in uh, what we call kind of the rural and remote areas. Um, it's become much worse. It's in Vancouver now, but it exists in every single district across the province. Teachers are ramping up for another round of bargaining with the provincial government. Salary will be on the table, but work around hiring more teachers and retaining more teachers will be one of the central points of the talks. The BCTF also says they need to graduate more teachers at more centres across the province. We reached out to the provincial government for a comment we didn't hear back. Chris? All right, Aaron, thank you. That's Aaron MacArthur reporting in Vancouver. Surrey RCMP are investigating a shooting in South Surrey. Police say several shots were fired just after midnight at a home on 154th Street near 28th Avenue. No one was hurt, thankfully. Officers are now canvassing the neighborhood for CCTV footage and are working to determine a motive. And later this hour, we'll take you live to a Surrey Gurdwara where members are commenting on that shooting and they have some interesting points to make about it as well. Now, we are learning more about the resignation of a high-profile member of the Vancouver Police Board. Yesterday, we reported that Faye Whiteman suddenly resigned. And with more on this, we're joined by Catherine Urquhart in the newsroom. Catherine, what's the latest? Well, Chris, we've spoken to several sources about this developing story, including someone who has seen Whiteman's resignation letter. We're told that letter indicates divisions within the board, some of the members being more aligned with Chair Ken Sim and others not so much. The letter alleges that Chair Ken Sim asked Whiteman for her resignation on several occasions, despite her being a provincial appointee with about two years remaining on her term. It appears things came to a head following a social event at Whiteman's home where some HR issues were discussed. Whiteman previously worked as CEO of the Vancouver Foundation, and she has declined to speak about her resignation. So far, the Solicitor General has not responded to our request for comment. We've also reached out to Mayor Ken Sims' office, and we're awaiting a response. Chris, back to you. Okay, let's hope we get it. Thanks very much, Catherine. Two and a half years after B.C. launched its prescribed safer supply drug policy, B.C.'s top doctor is releasing her review of the program. As Richard Zussman reports, Dr. Bonnie Henry is trying to answer the questions, is it working and is it really safer? It's been controversial since the start and four years into a prescribed opioid program. The province's top doctor wants it expanded. This is an important program and we can do better at maximizing the benefits of this. Dr. Bonnie Henry releasing a more than 70-page report Thursday, providing these recommendations. Prescribed supply should continue. The government must partner with Indigenous leaders to develop culturally safe supply options, and BC needs to decrease the risks of young people getting their hands on these drugs. We are concerned with making sure that we have an under, a better understanding of whether and how children and youth are accessing opioids. An acknowledgement as well that diversion is happening, meaning those that come to get their prescriptions are actually handing the drugs off to someone else. And because of that, Dr. Henry is recommending expanding the opioids available, including smokable fentanyl. Diversion in and of itself isn't something we should think of as, as good or bad. Diversion is something we should think of as in terms of its un unmet need. 
there were public officials uh, who called this an urban myth and, and said that, you know, they thought it was a waste of time to be studied. And now here we have finally an acknowledgement that there's evidence that it exists and that it may be causing harm. Health officials recommending providing prescribers additional education, reducing diversion by providing the drugs users need, and the always controversial suggestion of providing non-prescribed hard drugs to users. We are not moving to a non-medical model. Uh, we are starting to see evidence that was published in the British Medical Journal speaking to the, uh, the efficacy of the current model. As for what the current model will be called, Dr. Henry suggests scrapping the name Safer Supply and instead moving forward with prescribed alternatives. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Now, many public health experts say the problem with BC's safer supply program or prescribed alternatives is it doesn't go far enough. As Kristen Robinson reports, BC's former provincial health officer says the existing program maxes out at about 4,500 opioid users, but more than 200,000 British Columbians use illegal drugs. What do we want? Safe supply. The safe supply work. Marching for a safe supply. The definition of safe supply, not always clear. Free drugs for all, um, that's simply not accurate. Dr. Paxton Bach says pharmaceutical alternatives to street drugs are a critical part of the response to the overdose crisis. The evidence and, and the current reality of the toxic drug supply support the concept of a regulated alternative to the drug supply. In its current form as a limited prescription program reaching about 4,500 people, BC's former provincial health officer says safer supply doesn't go far enough when an estimated 100,000 people have diagnosed opioid substance use disorder. I think we need to have some serious discussion around going on beyond the prescriber model because we're just not going to be able to reach the numbers of people who are at risk. Dr. Perry Kendall says safer supply should be expanded and tested in a pilot to access more people and minimize unintended consequences like the diversion of drugs. If we really want to stop the death rate or the brain death rates, um, we're going to have to replace the toxic drug supply with a safer supply. BC's chief coroner agrees. It's not what some people would characterize as just giving away drugs to drug users. users. That's not what it's about. It's about keeping people alive by separate them, separating them from the toxic market. Dr. Kendall also supports the sale of safer supply in regulated hard drug stores, similar to the province's public and private cannabis and liquor retailers. It would require exemptions under the Federal Drugs and Substances Act. You could do it to such a point that you would maybe be slightly undercutting the illegal drug market. We're smart enough to do it. Um, whether we care enough to do it or whether we're politically brave enough to do it or politically honest enough to do it is another question. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Residents of a Chilliwack encampment told it's time to leave. It's like overwhelming. It's like a lot of emotions. Many of the residents here haven't been able to find more suitable shelter and they want to stay, but the landowner also has an opinion about why the residents need to leave. That's coming up next on the News Hour. This one's actually 16 mil First Nations fishing. Reels with feels. The BC man preserving our past, one almost forgotten film at a time.
coming up a little later. Right now, though, Coquitlam RCMP have released new pictures as they continue to look for one of the drivers involved in a horrendous hit and run last weekend. It happened Saturday night just before 10 o'clock at Pine Tree and Guilford Way. A young woman was in a marked crosswalk when she was struck by a white Hyundai SUV and then struck again by a red SUV while lying unconscious on the road. Neither driver remained at the scene, but police now say the driver of the red SUV has turned themselves in and is cooperating. They're still looking for the driver of the white Hyundai. We believe, again, that this is a four-door Hyundai Kona, and we are looking for this vehicle, which is believed to have front and uh, driver side damage, as well as the driver. We are asking the driver to come forward and do the right thing and speak to our investigators, just like the driver of the red SUV did following our first media release. Police say the driver of the Hyundai would have known they hit someone. They're asking the driver of a white Tesla and people riding on two different buses that passed by the scene at the time to call police if they think they saw anything that might help with the investigation. The victim is still in hospital. So far, no charges have been laid. Well, it's eviction day for dozens of people who've been living in a Fraser Valley squatters camp, some of them for years. It's on First Nations land, and as Alyssa Tebow reports, the band says the property is now needed for other purposes. In the rain, through the mud, dozens of RVs, trailers and campers are slowly removed from an encampment in Chilliwack. It's like overwhelming, it's like a lot of emotions, yeah. This encampment is on private property owned by the Shui village. A small number of people started living here about seven years ago, but recently numbers grew to about 50. It was nice at first till all these guys moved in. Because <laughs> there's only like maybe five, six of us here. It happened very, very quickly. It, there was just a few people at first and they just overnight just blew up. The village chief says his nation needs the land back to improve flood protection. A new dike will be built here with funding from the federal government and the city of Chilliwack. That will protect not just our reserve and the squad reserve, but the whole city of Chilliwack. So it's very critical that we clear this area so we can get into construction of this project. In December, campers were given notice they were trespassing and had to be out by January 31st. It's hard, but, you know, we knew it was coming, so, like, we just really didn't know what to do, what, what our next steps were. The village chief says they've been working with Outreach and BC Housing since June to find people places to go and donated $5,000 to support agencies. We're trying to clear this, and as we've said, in the most humane way, um, we're human beings, we're compassionate. Coming from here now and like everyone's, you know, like it's going to be hard to find somebody who would want to rent to like us. RCMP say once the land is cleared, the gates will be locked. Alyssa Tebow, Global News. Retired loggers in BC's interior are coming forward to Global News about problems with their pension plan. Many of the pensioners signed up for the plan in the 1980s. But recently, some of their benefits have been reduced or disappeared altogether. Paul Johnson reports. I turned 65 and it just blew up in my face and I'm sitting here with nothing. Alan Fetterchuk spent his career hauling wood across B.C. 
decades of hard work that he expected would conclude with a good pension, which his employers had paid into for almost 20 years. He says it hasn't worked out as expected. I've yet to receive a nickel, not a nickel from them. He's talking about the Interior Lumberman's Pension Plan, a pension set up in the 70s for employees of smaller, non-union forestry sector companies in the interior. Sources familiar with the situation tell Global News that about 150 companies were involved with the plan and that several hundred of their former employees have seen their pension benefits cut. We were thinking, wow, you know, our medicals looked after, our pension, we're going to have a good pension. But it, it, it never come out that way. Arlene Brown says her family is in a sort of double jeopardy, with her husband's pension from the plan being cut back, but with the family also on the hook to pay into the plan because of a previous ownership stake in one of the companies. The plan's administrator told Global News Thursday that employers terminated from the plan have been asked to provide this top-up solvency deficit and that some members may be faced with a reduction in benefits. They took all the employees' pensions and cut them 40%. In B.C., pensions like this are regulated by the B.C. Financial Services Authority who told Global News they're aware of the plan's situation and are working with them to address their challenges. While that's something, it may be of limited comfort for people like Federchuk, who's now expecting a diminished retirement. I used to work 15 hours a day, almost every day, hauling logs and poles. You figure you're going to be taken care of when you turn 65. Paul Johnson, Global News. Coming up, an inquest into a fatal fire nears its end. What we're learning about the Winters Hotel SRO and the safety of similar buildings in B.C. Plus, new developments in the case of a South Surrey house shot up with bullets and its possible connection to a high-profile murder. A warning now about some of the video in our next report. It might be upsetting to some viewers. It shows a portion of the deadly fire at the Winters Hotel SRO with a coroner's inquest wrapping up and compelling testimony about the safety of other similar buildings. Angela Jung reports. Day nine of the coroner's inquest heard how BC Housing was due to review Atira's operations, but the nonprofit had requested to delay that review. Had it been done, it would have looked at the Winters Hotel's safety plan and asked if fire drills were ever conducted. One resident banging on doors, alerting neighbors as smoke quickly filled the hallway and burning debris falls from the ceiling. Other residents moving slowly don't seem to take this as a real emergency. One man frantically gesturing people to leave. Previous testimony from an Atira staffer heard he wasn't sure if fire drills were being conducted. On Thursday, a representative from BC Housing testifying Atira was due for an operational review in 2018. The last one was done three years prior. Heidi Hartman says, my understanding is there was a request to delay and then with COVID, it was further delayed. She says typically before a building becomes an SRO, an assessment would be done. But because Atira leased the Winters Hotel from a private owner, BC Housing wasn't involved. The property was over 100 years old. Its alarm system, 50 years old. In a matter of minutes, 
flames ripped through the hotel, killing two people and displacing dozens. BC's fire commissioner also taking the stand, saying across the province, the number of SRO fires has gone up. He says it's all reflective of human behavior, unattended cooking, unattended candles, smoking materials, people under the influence of drugs or alcohol, heating devices. Vancouver firefighters have said unattended candles caused this deadly fire. Jurors are expected to begin deliberations Friday, not to lay blame, but to make recommendations to prevent similar tragedies from happening. Angela Jung, Global News. Just ahead, empowering the terminally ill. I don't understand why it's taking so long. Patients and their loved ones hopeful the government will give them a chance to die with dignity. And they were only children when they were torn from their homes. Today, the apology they've waited decades to hear. And more Canadian children are at risk of going to school on an empty stomach. And it's getting harder for school nutrition programs to meet their growing need. That's why Global News is partnering with Toonies for Tummies. If you're able, please help hungry children in your community. Donate today. All right, we're going to take you back to a story we brought you earlier on the news hour. RCMP investigating shots fired at a home in South Surrey. Troy Charles joins us now live from Guru Nanak Sikh Gurdwara in Surrey. And Troy, leaders there are linking the shooting to another recent high-profile murder on that property. That's correct, Chris. I'm outside here at the Gurdwara and inside the press conference is taking place. The building where this happening is actually named after the late Hardeep Singh Nijar, who, as you mentioned, was gunned down here last June. Now, inside, members speaking here tonight say the shooting that happened at the Sikh activist house last night in South Surrey is the work of the Indian government, similar to accusations made by Canada related to the murder of Nijar. Now here, this is the home of Sikh activist Simranjit Singh. Gudwara members say Singh had arrived home in South Surrey around 1.10 a.m. last night, and 10 minutes later, two shooters riddled his car and home with bullets. Members say Singh's family was home at the time, including a six-year-old child. They say recently Singh had approached police several times, saying he's been followed and cars had been parked outside his home in South Surrey. Surrey RCMP are investigating the shooting. Thankfully, no one was hurt. Gudar members say Simranjit Singh was a very close associate and friend of the late Hardeep Singh Nijar. Um, he's a close associate, a very close associate and friend of Bhai Hardeep Singh Nijar. Uh, he worked with Hardeep Singh here at Gurnanik Sikh Gurdwara, where we're collected today. He does regular service here at the Gurdwara. He's uh, an activist for the Sikh sovereignty movement of Khalistan. Uh, he supports the Khalistan referendum and has been a volunteer in that movement for several years. Uh, and he was also one of the key organizers on January 26th last week when a protest was held in front of the Indian consulate uh, on 325 Howe Street. So he's very well known in our community. He's a long-standing member and upstanding citizen. Chris, obviously very tense and concerning times for the community here. I'll have a full report on this situation coming up on the late news at 11. Look forward to that. Thank you very much. That's Troy Charles reporting for us in Surrey. B.C.'s Attorney General has formally apologized to members of an exiled Russian Christian group, the Sons of Freedom Dukabors. 
Nikki Sharma was in Castlegar on behalf of Premier David Eby to issue that apology. Hundreds of Dukabor children were forcibly taken from their parents more than 70 years ago. Many of them were kept behind a chain-link fence in New Denver at a former tuberculosis sanatorium. They were restricted from speaking their native tongue and from seeing their parents and endured years of physical and mental abuse. This is a shameful part of our history. I was deeply moved when I heard the words, the welfare of the whole world is not worth the life of a single child. I'm driven to tears to comprehend the horrors experienced by children of your community. On behalf of the province of British Columbia, we acknowledge and apologize for these past injustices that were committed by the province. It was wrong and it should not have happened. The Duke of Boer's quest for financial compensation remains unresolved. Medically assisted death for patients with mental illness or other disabilities is at the center of an ongoing debate. But as Nitu Garcha reports, there is widespread support for advanced requests when a competent person with an illness requests made for a future date when they've lost the capacity to make that decision. He's a very active, outgoing kind of individual, very healthy, very fit. Susan Archibald and her husband Dave traveled the world together. She says as president of an environmental consulting company, her loving partner and father to their daughter worked on multinational projects across the globe. But in 2013, everything changed. It's a very sad situation when your partner is diagnosed with an irremediable disease. Dave was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's at age 55. They continued traveling as long as they could. There you go. But she says the disease has robbed him of his dignity. Okay, can you take a sip of this? Susan says Dave, who's been living in a North Vancouver care facility for nearly two years, can't feed himself and he doesn't recognize her. I just act as if he knows me. Sometimes he just stares vacantly at me. Those were the two criteria he wrote out 10 years ago in his advance request for medical assistance in dying, also known as MAID. I struggle a lot with that decision. I, I lose a lot of sleep over it. Um, but I know that's what he wanted. Despite polling showing significant support and a parliamentary committee recommending it, advance requests for people diagnosed with debilitating diseases like Alzheimer's have not been approved by Ottawa. I don't understand why it's taking so long. The federal health minister's office says the issue is complex and significant consultation and study is needed. Dementia patient Ron Posno isn't so sure. Doing it for political purposes. That's one large part of it. The 84-year-old has long advocated for advance requests for MAID. I've laid out eight very specific conditions. Uh, so when any one of them occur, that's the time I want MAID. Thank you very much. They're hoping they can say now, when they're fully capable, what they would want at a time in the future when they may not be able to speak for themselves. Dr. Stephanie Green has been administering MAID since it became legal in Canada in 2016. It's not so easy to operationalize. Who will decide when those parameters have been met? Uh, what exactly uh, dictates when those parameters have been met? Susan vows to walk by Dave's side until the very end, cherishing every fleeting moment they shared and work to honor his wish to die with dignity. Neetu Garcha, Global News, North Vancouver.
Well, just ahead, he's the real deal. World War I, America goes over. A local film expert preserving old movies. Many of them haven't seen the light of day for years. That's later on the news hour. And coming up in sports, what the blockbuster Lindholm trade says about the Canucks' plans for the playoffs. feels mild out there you are not wrong more records have fallen here's Christy with the details when we look at sort of just one daily record broken it doesn't seem exceptional when you get five days in a row of this it really is exceptional so these were the records broken today eight of them today uh, maybe there's a chance tomorrow but overall temperatures are starting to come down tomorrow's definitely a transition day today's February 1st so I thought we'd look back at January average high well yeah we were near average and that's because it was very cold at the beginning of January and very warm at the end of the January so you average that out and that's what you get near average uh, in terms of that daytime high but days of precipitation 22 well above average rainfall 229 millimeters well above average and snowfall 36 centimeters well above average typically in january we'd only get 11 centimeters of snow so it was very wet indeed we had a lot of cloud cover but uh we've finished things off with very mild conditions we're going to see a roll reversal now with barely any precipitation in the forecast and that has allowed bc river forecast center to downgrade everything to a high stream flow advisory. There's one area, though, still under a flood watch, and that's the Sprout Lake area as well as the Somas River. But overall, we are definitely expecting this to shift out. We still have that southerly flow, so temperatures tomorrow will still be above average, but we're slowly starting to see a drop. I want to point, point out Pine Pass. It has been very mild all across the province, so Pine Pass area tonight, uh, tomorrow night, Friday night, we're going to see a big drop in temperature for you, so the freeze is on. Uh, watch for icy conditions. Again, that's Pine Pass. And we will see a drop in temperature across most of the region. For the south coast, though, still above average. We do have a few showers in the forecast for our day tomorrow morning, but it should be drier in the afternoon. And we're trending towards sunshine. But I want to highlight Saturday. Mainly cloudy now. Looks like we're going to be contending with a fair amount of low-level cloud and fog, and that may keep us socked in on Saturday. So we'll be watching for that, but hopefully some sunshine on Sunday. Yes, you know what it's like to be sort of socked in in Summerland. This is from today. Robin, thanks for sharing that photo with us. That's maybe what it looks like in Metro Vancouver tomorrow. All right, Chris, back to you. That's a beautiful shot. Thanks very much, Christy. Here's Squire now with a look ahead to sports. You know, when we were talking about the newest Canuck Elias Lindholm yesterday, we did not mention that he's actually at All-Star Weekend. He was supposed to be there representing the Flames. Of course, now he's yet another Canuck at the uh, All-Star Festivities in Toronto. We'll talk more about Lindholm, hear from uh, Patrick Alvin and what he thinks of his latest acquisition. The more All-Stars, the better. That's what they say. Also ahead... Every film, video, whatever we, we handle here has a story. Lifetime Films, saving reels at risk of being lost forever. Everybody wants to join the Canucks now. Well, right. Of course. It's everybody's in the league right all now. in. Yep. Elias Lindholm, of course, is a Canuck. And he's also, well, he was originally an all-star for Calgary. But 
forget that Calgary thing. Uh, he is in Toronto with a lot of his new teammates for the All-Star festivities. Unfortunately, all the Canucks are on one team in that four-team All-Star tournament. Lindholm didn't get picked by his new friend Quinn Hughes in time to keep him from playing on Nathan McKinnon's team. Oh, well, no big deal. Uh, as for the trade itself, this was the move the Canucks wanted to make. And they basically beat a lot of other contenders to the punch because there were a number of teams who were very interested in making a trade for Elias Lindholm, even though he was having what you would call an off-season in Calgary. He is Swedish, and that usually works out pretty well for Vancouver, except, of course, in that Louis Erickson case. But let's just hope that was a one-off. The last goal Elias Lindholm scored as a Calgary Flame actually broke a 16-game goalless drought. Lindholm only has nine goals and 32 points this year, well off the big numbers two years ago when he scored 42 goals and 82 points, playing alongside Matthew Kachuk and Johnny Gaudreau. But the Canucks aren't too concerned. Lindholm brings an all-around game that they are positive will bloom offensively when paired with the other Elias, Pedersen, giving the Canucks even more firepower up front. Put it this way, I think we have several guys here that put the puck in that. And I think uh, Elias will just give those guys uh, another opportunity to get the puck and uh, put it in net. I, I don't necessarily see him just as a goal scorer. I see him as a, a passer first uh, mentality. And, and I think that's uh, what the intriguing part is where, where this uh, 200-foot game. And, uh, and as I said, another uh, option for our players to have a right shot uh, Center. First career penalty shot for Lindholm to make it a 2-0 game. Scores! It's not a coincidence that Lindholm has connections to Canucks president Jim Rutherford, who drafted Lindholm sixth overall in 2013 when he ran the Carolina Hurricanes. Pretty much every move Rutherford and Alvin have made in their time in Vancouver involves players and coaches who they've worked with before. I think it's important that we do our homework uh, on the players uh, on the ice as well as off the ice. And definitely when you have a history with people, it definitely makes you comfortable uh, with the characteristics. The Canucks gave up a lot for Lindholm. Andre Kuzmenko plus first and fourth round picks in this year's draft plus two prospects. So it would seem to make sense they would like to keep Lindholm in Vancouver long term and sign him to a new deal. Alvin feels there's enough cap room to get both Elias's names on long-term contracts. And he also hasn't ruled out adding another piece before the trade deadline. We'll settle down here with the team, uh, continue to talk to Rick Talk and then his staff and, and continue to watch our team, how we how we continue to grow together. And that, that will dictate over the next couple of weeks if there is uh, anything we, we feel we need as a, as a group here. And here is the first look at Elias Lindholm in a Canucks uniform. He's going to wear 23 in Vancouver. As we said, he wasn't picked as part of Team Hughes for the All-Star Tournament, but I guess technically he's representing the Vancouver Canucks, which means the Canucks will have, is it six All-Stars? Yeah. yeah, six. And the coach. And the coach makes seven. Uh, the BCHL has now officially absorbed five teams from Alberta into the fold. Those five will play a short schedule against each other for the rest of this season because they were kicked out of the Alberta League when they found out they wanted to come this way. 
And the winner of that short season will play the BCHL champion in some sort of series, which uh, the details of which haven't been worked out yet. You know, it's very strange, very strange to watch a Seahawks press conference without Pete Carroll. But the Pete era is over in Seattle, and the guy beside me, Mike McDonald, his era has begun. He is the youngest head coach in the NFL at the age of 36. As we said last night, they went from the oldest head coach to now the youngest head coach in Seattle. But around the league, he is considered a defensive wizard. Worked for the Baltimore Ravens. They were a great defense. And he is now ready to run an entire team. He's not really an offensive mind, so whoever the offensive coordinator is will call the plays in Seattle. But the defensive coordinator, whoever that is, will not be calling the plays on defense. McDonald wants to keep on doing that himself. And the Hawks, the defense the Seahawks will have next season will be 100% his. Right now the plan is I'll be calling the plays. Um, now, depending on who the defensive coordinator is and when... Uh, when that becomes that ultimately I'm the head coach of the football team so I want to coach the football team the, the the spirit of how we play and the principles of how we play what you've seen on the tape in Baltimore will be the same but I can't guarantee you the the schematics will be the same uh, here because you know I just we're not sure what we're good at yet well they better get good at stopping the run <laughs> you know For they're gonna one be, thing they're gonna be flying around of course the big question sure. is will Geno Smith be the quarterback next year yeah Remains to be seen. Yes, it does. All right, thanks very much, Squire. Coming up, a film buff preserving history one old movie at a time. Some great stuff coming up. A BC man is making quite a name for himself, restoring reels of old film, much of it forgotten, that recorded so much of our history, including First World War footage, a royal visit, and sports milestones. Jay Durant takes us on a trip back in time on This Is BC. This one's actually 60 mil First Nations fishing. Yeah. Stacks of history uncovered one reel at a time. World War I, America goes over. John Romain has seen all types of footage brought in by clients hoping to save memories. They wanted their family films back, but they had no interest in these World War I uh, films. So I said, okay, I know where to get rid of them. I'll hold on to them. Lifetime Heritage Films has spent the past two decades digitizing long lost material. Every film, video, whatever we, we handle here has a story to it. And it's bringing those stories out. To preserve history, uh, to show it um, to people because it does no good sitting in a closet. Rescuing moments in time from city archives. I had been working with the city of New Westminster archives and one of the uh, films they had stuck in a freezer there that had the 1915 and 1917 May Day on it. Offering a glimpse of what our streets used to look like. One of the films that comes to mind it really shows sort of the downtown Vancouver in uh, 1939 was the King and Queen's visit back then. Uh, there was the Vancouver Hotel, there was the Devonshire, there was the Georgia. Beyond those, it was pretty much one or two level buildings. Film flashbacks to different eras that has kept the reel spinning in Romaine's workshop. Always excited about what else can be discovered under a dust pile in someone's storage. It's always new stuff. 
these treasures sitting sitting in bankers boxes and, and freezers who knows what what's going to show up there Jay Durant Global News oh amazing old images that's fantastic and if you know someone who has a great story to tell something unique to BC that you want to share with everyone just email your ideas to Jay at this is BC at globalnews.ca you pointed out that was the Lionsgate yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, I always wonder what it would be like, you know, in the future, them looking back at our footage. Oh, that's amazing old footage. What will it look like in it's, the future? It's going to be trucks hitting overpasses and lots of traffic <laughs> on the bridges is yeah. what I'm... Oh, there'll be traffic on the Lions Gate because when you saw that footage, there was no bottom to it. Well, that's <laughs> right. No traffic on Lions Gate back then. All right. Thanks for watching, everyone. Have a great night. We'll see you back here tomorrow.